So what I want to do is I want to tell you four stories about Easter. And I think in these four stories, we're actually going to have a big story. I think they go together. So in a way, I'm giving you four pieces of fabric. I'm handing them out to you. They're different. And, it, and, and you guys are going to get to sew them together. We're going to spin a story together, if you will. So there's going to be these four scenes, and we're going to see how they go together. So with that said... We're going to be in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in that order. And if you don't know where the resurrection passages are, they're the last chapter of each of those Gospels, with the exception of John, which is the second to last chapter. So if you want to make your way now to Matthew chapter 28. So I'm going to give you guys a phrase per Gospel story um, that sticks out to me. And in Matthew... We have became like dead men. So Matthew, we're going to look at the dead men. So Matthew 28, verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, she was introduced at the cross. So these are two Marys who had seen Jesus crucified. Only one's still there. The disciples, the male disciples have fled. They watched Jesus get buried. Now they're at the tomb. Uh, so... Mary and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Like, that was easy. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified, but he is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, come, see the place where he lay. Then quickly go and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. You can almost see them like as he's talking, peering out. Oh, and like, see, I told you. Verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus went, met them and said, greetings. Just, you know, hey, what's up? What? And they came and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now, one more section. While they were going, verse 11, Behold, some of the guard, remember the ones that were like dead men? Those guys. Some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled, they're, they're telling the chief priests, because, uh, and they're not telling their boss. Notice that? The chief priests aren't in command of the soldiers. They're, they're going to another power to help us against our boss. It's kind of like going to the union, I guess. Um, I wouldn't know what that's like. I'm a pastor. But verse 12. <laughs> and when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. 
And if this comes to the governor's ears, that's their boss. If this comes to your boss's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. Sounds like the government, doesn't it? Getting paid for not doing your job. Oh, sorry if you work for the government. <laughs> and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Okay. So our phrase here was back in verse 4. And fear, and for fear of the angel, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Like dead men. I used to picture that they were just there, and then all of a sudden they just collapsed, right? Because the angel's just like, boom, be gone. But it says like dead men, and I looked up the wording, and, and sure enough, the word dead here simply means to be deprived of power. So they lost their ability to stand. They lost their ability to be soldiers. And they became, if you will, like jello. Just wishy-washy men that couldn't do anything, okay? So they've lost their power. Notice they obviously didn't just faint and collapse because it says in verse 11 that they went and told the chief priest what had happened. Well, it's hard to tell them what happened if you were fainted and passed out, right? So they're not just like completely out. They're just like, they're disarmed from their ability to be guards. They were no longer able to stand on their two feet, if you will, maybe even quite literally. They were no longer who they're supposed to be. And this is what stuck out to me is, first of all, Matthew's the only one that really talks about the soldiers, okay? He talks about the soldiers, and I actually want you to read the section right before 28 when they bury Jesus so you can see the significance of the soldiers and then why it matters that they became like dead men. So in 27 verse 62, notice this. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. I remember Pilate's the one that said, oh, fine, kill him. So they gathered before Pilate and said, he's the governor, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last fraud be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it secure, as secure as you can. So, they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Okay, so Pilate, the representative of the Roman Empire, he is Rome's representative to the Jews in Jerusalem. He's representing Caesar, the empire of humanity that rules the world. Man's vision of the kingdom of God is Caesar. And it's being extended through Pilate. And Pilate says, you need our power to keep this guy dead? All right, you can have my men. So the soldiers are sent. Then one more step. They sealed the stone so that they would know if anybody tampered with trying to open it. Just like old-fashioned letters came with a wax seal, so you would know if it had been ripped open or not. And seals, the wax was always pressed with the signet ring of the authority who sealed it. So that if you break the seal to get in there, it's saying you're messing with the owner of the signet ring that stamped the seal. 
So Pilate's ring, representative of, of Caesar, would have been smashed into that wax around the stone and it would say, anyone who breaks this stone open has defied Caesar, the king of the world. Yeesh, yeah, you don't want to get near that. So the women are coming to the tomb. How are we going to open the tomb? What are we going to do? Well, God's like, Caesar? Do I have to obey your rules? And he rips the tomb open. And what you see is, one, Caesar has no power to keep this thing closed. No power whatsoever. The life within the tomb, even dead, supersedes the life of Caesar on the throne of the capital of the world. Then his guards, the life within comes out and they can no longer stand on their own two feet. They become like dead men. What do we see? We see the powers of the Roman Empire, which were the ones who were alive and they put everybody else to death. Jesus, for example, on the cross. Now it's all reversed. It's flipped. Jesus is the one who's alive, and the representatives of the power of Rome are the ones who become like dead men. This is the weightiness. This is the depth. This is the solidity of the life that Christ has brought out of the tomb. He didn't just, he didn't just come back to life. Like, guys, like that magic trick? I know it's three days of suspense, but I'm back. It wasn't just, oh, he's back. It was, there's a new kind of life in this person that's coming out. And this is such a potent, such a deep, such a vivid, such a solid, such a real life that those who are not prepared to stand before it cannot stand and become as though dead in comparison to the richness of this life. That's something that even the most powerful name on the planet couldn't stand before it. And furthermore, contrast these like dead men with the women. Now, in not my thoughts, first century thoughts, First century is like, well, women are weak. Women are for raising children. Women don't have any testimony. Yet it's these women who outlast the disciples and following Jesus. It's these women who are at the tomb. It's these women who don't become like dead men. But notice how they respond to the life that comes out of the tomb. They respond with more life. You see it? How they respond? They first of all listen, but then in verse 8, while these guys are lying around as if dead men, oh, ah, we're terrified, the women are departing quickly. There's fear. Yeah, I haven't seen somebody rise from the dead either. And great joy. And they ran to tell the disciples. They're running. They see Jesus' greetings. And then they fall at his feet. There's, they are full of life. And here's, here's the truth. Here's what we see in this. That the kind of life that Jesus brings to the world brings one of two results to the people that encounter him. Either it brings you to be like a dead man, or it brings you to have more life. I'm going to take you guys to 1 Corinthians to finish this thought in Matthew. Um, 1 Corinthians, to show you what we're talking about with this super life. 1 Corinthians is to your right, maybe, I don't know, an eighth of an inch. 
1 Corinthians 15, another classic Easter text. Paul's talking about the resurrection of Christ and how that means we will be resurrected. That's great news. But he's talking about the the life of the resurrection. And in 15, verse 50, he says this. 1 Corinthians 15, 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now, when he says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, he doesn't mean that a human body cannot. He means a human body in its biological form. That's what he means by flesh and blood. Your current biological form can't inherit the kingdom of God. Because we run on a very short-lived, temporary operating system called the BIOS life. But God wants to download into us the Zoe life. And that's the life that Jesus raises from the tomb with. The Zoe life is the one that lives forever. And it has an endless quality, not only in length, but also in depth. It is an unlimited, infinite life. That's the life that he's saying. We need that to inherit the kingdom of God. So, that's what he says. The imper- the perish- nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So, what's going to happen? Well, verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Your software update's coming. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised. Perishable? Now remember, Jesus did not come out just the same. He came out different. So we will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. 53. For this perishable body, he's talking about the bios life, must put on the imperishable, the zoe life. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death. Where is your sting? So we have to be changed. Do you see, the soldiers weren't changed. They could not stand before this life. They could not inherit it. But the women could, because a change has begun. It has not been their resurrection yet, but the change has begun in them, and they can start to stand up to the life of God, because they've been following Jesus. Turn one more page, at least in my Bible, it's one more page, to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So maybe two pages. If you have big font, it might be five pages. 2 Corinthians 3. He's just echoing, Paul again, to the Corinthians. He's echoing the same idea. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. Now, when Jesus came out of the tomb, glory of the Lord. Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We are being transformed from one degree of glory to another to become like his glory. Okay, when is this happening? Read again. For we are being transformed. 
So yes, there will be a future when we will finally completely convert to the new operating system. But we are getting beta versions of it every year that we keep following Jesus. And that's why the women at the tomb did not become like dead men when Jesus rose. Because they had been taking the steps through their lives of following him. Friends, the way we follow Jesus, and when we do the things he asks us to do and practice the virtues he's demonstrated for us, we are not earning our way to heaven. We are preparing ourselves for the life of heaven. Because we cannot inherit it as we are. So he leads us in certain footsteps so that we can toughen our feet for a life that is too real for mere mortal feet. So if he was to just right here, would you be like the soldiers or like the women? But the world wants to keep you like the soldiers. Have you felt that? The world's trying to tell you, oh, you believe in Jesus, that's enough. Don't worry about following him. It's just pretty radical. The chief priests paid the soldiers to say what? The body was stolen while we were asleep. The world is paying us to stay asleep. It's paying us with pleasure. It's paying us with possessions. It's paying us with position. And it keeps us occupied with those things. Climbing the ladder of the bios life, the perishable life, the mortal life. When Jesus is calling us to wake up, to be like the woman at the tomb, and to not climb the ladder of possession, pleasure, and position, but to go deeper into the immortal, the imperishable, the Zoe life of the resurrected Christ. So, feels good to be paid by the world, doesn't it? Shh, just here, we'll pay you just keep telling everyone you're asleep. Let's wake up. Let's wake up. We're missing, right? Easter is not, this is, I feel like sometimes the church is like a museum. We come in and we observe. Don't touch. Just look with your eyes. And it's like you're walking through the building every year. And there's exhibits. And we're in the exhibit called Easter. And we look we're like, ooh, the resurrection is pretty cool. Exhibit B, you'll see Christmas. See the baby in the manger. It's like we think it's something to observe, but it's actually something to enter. And so the gospel is asking us to wake up, to be alive, to let the life begin to change us from one degree of glory to another. Because we are inheritors of his resurrection. Mark. So, story number two, Mark chapter 16. Mark 16, just to the right of Matthew. Our phrase for Mark, the one we're going to highlight is, so what was it in Matthew? They became like dead men. In Mark, it's, go tell his disciples and Peter. Mark's the only one to add the phrase, and Peter. It's believed, by the way, that Mark was the boy in the Garden of Eden who ran off naked when the soldiers grabbed his garment. That He was a boy when Jesus was around. He grows up, if, and he was probably of the household that owned the Garden of Eden. It was probably the backyard of Mark's parents' house. Mark was therefore rich. Mark was educated. Mark was literate. Peter was a fisherman, probably wasn't that good at writing a book, especially a book of the Bible. So Peter joins up with Mark to write this gospel. So there's a lot of Peter's personal touch in here. 
Go tell the disciples, oh, and that failure, Peter. That's what we're going to see. So let's read the story. Chapter 16, Mark 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen, and he is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Peter. Peter's writing this gospel with Mark at a time when the church is being persecuted by the Romans. And so he has something to say to the churches. Jesus suffered. It's going to be okay. The resurrection is on the other side of suffering. Now, in addition to that, Peter wanted the followers to know, I'm no one special. The church leaders are no one special. Follow Jesus. He's the one who's special. Because it can be easy in times of suffering to cling to the coattails of your pastor, right? So what Peter does is he tells the story of Jesus, and he makes him and his gang of disciples worthless. They are complete failures in the Gospel of Mark. There is no highlight reel in the Gospel of Mark. Peter is not renamed to rock. He's instead called the devil. Peter doesn't walk on water. It's his, his part, kind of like his autobiography of Jesus. And yet, Peter doesn't insert the part where he walks on water. That's not in the Gospel of Mark. Why? Peter doesn't want anybody looking at him, right? There's no highlight reel in the Gospel of Mark. So I'm going to take you through a quick tour de force of their failure. Mark chapter 4, verse 13. I'm going to go quick, so follow along or just listen. 4 verse 13, Jesus tells a parable. Then he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? You guys are supposed to be the ones that get what I'm teaching, and you don't get it. So right off, we see them not getting anything. 4 verse 40, Jesus calms a storm on the boat, right? And 440, he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? 531, And his disciples said to Jesus, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? Remember the woman touches Jesus' garment to be healed? Well, here, um, the disciples are doing nothing but mocking Jesus. Like, what do you mean? You're being pushed by everybody. And so they don't even give him the credit that he senses a need, right? They're just so blind and oblivious. They're more like, "Uh, Everyone's pushing against us. It's so hard to be popular. And Jesus is like being made fun of because he senses, no, there's a real need here. Like, Jesus, you always thinking about people. 6 verse 35. Yeah, this is when they're feeding the 5,000. 635. And when it grew late, his disciples came to Jesus and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. 
This is after Jesus saw the crowds and had compassion. They're like, they don't belong here. It's late. Go home and eat. Then Jesus, of course, will then say, why don't you feed them? So they don't have any compassion. 6 verse 52. They're out on a boat. Jesus walks on water to them. They're afraid because they think it's a ghost. And then it says in 652, they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Like Pharaoh's heart. They have hardened hearts. 717. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable again. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Who's the also? Oh, the religious leaders that he was trying to show that are in error. So are you just like them? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Now, 8.14. Now, in 8.14, he had fed the 4,000. So he fed the 5,000. Now he did it again. He fed the 4,000. And in 8.14, this is like the climax of their error. Well, no, pen, never mind. It's bad, though. In 8.14, now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And Jesus is talking about the influence of the religious leaders and the political leaders. But they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. You idiot! You didn't bring the bread! It was my job! It was Simon's job! And they're pointing the fingers, and then Jesus, aware of this in verse 17, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? You know what he's quoting? Why do you preach them in parables? Because having eyes they do not see and having ears they do not hear. Well, now he's telling the disciples that they're just like the rest of the lot. Now, do you not remember, verse 19, when I broke the five loaves and the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? Uh, You see them counting on their fingers. Uh, Twelve. Verse 20. And the seven for the 4,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? Uh, Seven. Do you not yet understand? Okay, now 833. It's really good. Um, We'll start in 829. 829, he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. In 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. In other words, they can't miss what he's saying. It was obvious, but Peter misses it. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. No, 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 Jesus, I know you're like the Son of God, and I just said you're the Christ. You're like the future ruler of Israel and the world. But let me tell you how you're supposed to do this. You're not supposed to die. You're supposed to go in there and show them your muscles and your fighting skills and just take down the empire. But turning, verse 33, turning and seeing his disciples... Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. I guarantee the other 11 had a good time giving Peter his new nickname after that. Uh, 9.18, because they were very competitive, as you'll see in a moment. 9.18, they... um, 
there's a, a person who gets seizures, and it's, it says, Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So, Jesus, I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able <laughs> and then Jesus is like, seriously, they still don't get it? Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? 9.33. 9.33. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, by the way, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Well, we know Mr. Devil isn't, they kept telling Peter. And the others thought they had a chance to be the leader, right? But they were embarrassed because they are selfish. 938. Check this one out. I love this one. 938. John said to him, thinking that he did something heroic, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. So John just got put in his place like you were wrong. 10.13. This one's great. In 10.13, they were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them. And then the disciples rebuked them. (laughs) No, 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 no. No children for Jesus. He's not a children person. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. Not just a little like, oh, let me teach them. No, he was like, these guys don't get me at all. He was indignant and said, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. Okay, you're getting the point. We're almost done. 10.35. 10.35 is just the, oh, I keep saying it's like the top, but it's not even yet. 10.35, James and John, by the way, Jesus just said, I'm going to do something to die for everyone. And then James and John respond with, that's nice. Um, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. I feel like that in high school sometimes. Like, <laughs> sorry, I have a student in the room, so I shouldn't say too much. But um, <laughs> you know, you're like telling them something else, and like, and it looks like they have this look on their face, right? Like a profound insight, and it's like, I have to pee. <sighs> okay. Um, so Jesus, is like, profound, like teaching about the Savior of the world. Like, teacher, that's nice. We want you to do what we ask you to do. So in verse 37, they said to him, or Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And then verse 37, they said, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And you can just imagine the inner eye roll Jesus did, or the outer, and explain to them, okay, I can't do that for you guys. Um, and then 14, verse 4. 37. There's three more. 1437. You guys know this one. 1437. Jesus is in Gethsemane praying. He knows he's about to die. He's praying hardcore. In 1437, he came and found his disciples sleeping and said to, said to Peter, he's picking on Peter here, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Man, for everything I'm about to do, you can't watch one hour And then in 1450, Jesus is arrested. And what do we see? They all left him and fled. Right after they had all said, oh, no, we promise we'll die for you. We're not going to leave you. Jesus is arrested and they all fled him, left him and fled. And then Peter's not much better. 1454, he followed him at a distance. At least Peter's still in the game. He 
follows him at a distance, but then you know in verse 66, 1466, we're not going to read it for time's sake, but you know this. He denies Jesus three times. Even after he said, I would rather die with you, for you, than to deny you. Peter fails. And there, the disciples are out of the picture. Only the women, the female disciples, are seen from this point on until the resurrection. And Jesus says, go and tell, or the angel says, go tell his disciples and Peter. Friends, I I went through the long effort of showing you all of the highlight, what does ESPN call it? Like the not highlight, the top not highlights, something like that. I showed you like the worst of the disciples because we need to see that this is us. And that we are dropping the ball left and right. You may not have literally denied Jesus at some dinner party or something. But sometimes our actions are going against. They're going contrary. And the resurrection says to us, I'm taking failures and I'm using them. What you think is an anchor holding you back. I'm going to catapult it forward as a stepping stone to lift you higher into the new life. We can't get there without our failure. We will never get to his life without our failure. Because if I'm at the top of my life, I'm never going to see a need for his life. He will always use our failures. That's what the resurrection says. No shame in him. Jesus comes out of the tomb, and he doesn't come out angry. (sighs) Well, at least the women were here for me. Nor does he come out with vengeance. Just wait till I just can't wait to tell Peter. I told you so. You know how you all want to say that, right? No, I won't deny you. Deny you? I can't wait to let them know. I told you you would. Um, He doesn't do any of that. He just comes out and says, "Make sure my friends know I'm here for them, and I'm going to meet them in Galilee." That is what he says to us every time we fall flat on our face. Luke chapter twenty-four. Ooh, um, okay. This is a lot, so we're going to just scan around. Luke 24. So like the other episodes, you know, the women are coming to the tomb. Whoa, an angel's talking to us. He's not here. He's risen. I want us to pick up in verse 10, 24-10. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles. Like, we went to the tomb. He wasn't there. There's this angel. And like, you can just hear like, you, you've seen people in an excited fuss about something, right? They're not even making sense because they don't even, there's no categories for the human language to talk about this, right? You can't say like, remember the other week when we saw that guy come out of the tomb? You, you're, you're, you're telling a fresh story and it's, it's coming out. And so it says in verse 11, but these words seem to the apostles like an idle tale and they did not believe them. Okay, well, I have a feeling that sometimes the resurrection is like an idle tale to us. On one hand, you have the pessimist, or the skeptic, or the agnostic, or the atheist, or the I'm spiritual but not religious person. And they point their finger and say, huh, did you already notice the difference between Matthew and Mark, how there was 
The women came to the tomb and it wasn't rolled away yet in Matthew, but in Mark it was already rolled away. Ha! Explain that one. Why are there soldiers in Matthew, not in Mark? Explain that one. So they ignore, or they, they point out all the differences. They highlight them, say, see, they're tall tales. They're myths. They're idle tales. This is all fake. Humans invented the, the resurrection. On the other side, you have like the fervent believers like, how dare you bring that up? Just ignore it. It's God's word. Ignore that. We know it's somehow true. Or... I know you've all had a moment where you saw something that was hard to describe. Something that blew your mind because you didn't have previously arranged categories for talking about it. Or you know someone. It, usually this happens with dreams. People try to explain their dream and they think it's really interesting and you don't. <laughs> and they go on and on, right? They like think every detail is so important. And you're like, it makes no sense. Um... That's like, see, you're trying to pull something that didn't really happen in reality, and you're trying to make reality out of it. Well, it's sort of like, I'm not saying the resurrection isn't reality, but it's sort of like you see something you've never seen before. To you, it's almost like, is this actually happening? And they're beside themselves, and they're excited. I mean, how would you remember this event if you saw someone rise from the dead? How would you remember it? How would you recall it? And furthermore, how would you share that story? It's, an unpre- it's not like you have a story plot to follow already given to you. Students, when you see the resurrection, just in case someday, this is how you explain it to someone. They're just like, oh yeah, we're going to go anoint this dead person, and all of a sudden, what? And now they have to explain this, and they're like chitter-chattering, and they're being incoherent, and the apostle's like, yeah. Are you sure you didn't sniff those spices? Because you guys are a little, uh, right? I guarantee you wouldn't be calm, you wouldn't be collected, and you wouldn't be coherent. Rather, you would be excited, you'd be rattled, you'd be haphazardly spewing out phrases out of order. Oh, wait, 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 I forgot to tell you that this thing, and then you were like, okay. That is, in a sense, how we have the gospel resurrection accounts recorded for us. We have people that could not reach for precise wording. And so we get the different experiences that come across and I'm, I'm saying all this because I think we needed to ask ourselves an important question. Do we have open eyes or an open mind toward the resurrection? Or are we seeing that as something that I've already categorized? Is it in a nice little box called theology? I dust it off every now and then. Christmas and Easter. So Jesus is actually alive. And he's walking with two fellas on the road to Emmaus. Look in verse 16. They're talking. 24, 16. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. They're two of Jesus' followers. They don't recognize him, but he's walking with them. (laughs) He's teaching them about what happened, who he is. Beginning with Moses, he explained how he's in the scriptures everywhere. Then they stop. For the night, they're going to have some supper. Jesus wants to keep going. but like, no, 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 please, please stay with us. You're so interesting. Keep talking to us. And so, look at verse 29, 24, 29. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So Jesus went in to stay with them, 
When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Does that sound familiar? He did that when he fed the 5,000, the 4,000. And he did that at the Last Supper with his disciples. He's doing it here. And then in verse 31, when they see him taking the bread, blessing it, breaking it, and giving it to them, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. Right at the moment of recognition. The elusive risen Jesus. By the way, the phrase for this one, we have, um, and they became like dead men. Tell the disciples and Peter, this is, their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened. Right there, he was walking with them, he was talking with them, and it wasn't until he ate with them that their eyes were opened. Then, the other disciples, they go and say, oh, you won't believe it, we saw Jesus. Like, um, we've been hearing this a lot lately. What what is going, it must be allergy season. (laughs) So Jesus then appears to the disciples in verse 36. They're really skeptical. He's like, come on, touch me. I have real skin here. You can touch me. Do you have something to eat? So he eats to prove eating. Jesus was really into eating. That's a good thing, that the future is going to be full of food. He eats a fish to show I'm not a ghost. Can a ghost eat food? Um, And then in verse 45, we see he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And then they got it. So here's what we see in Luke. There's this blindness. We go around with this, this is the world I know. Science has told me that this is the world. And regardless of your science bent, if you're an evolutionist or not, it doesn't matter. We have a rational mind, thanks to the Enlightenment. We have a rational mind, which is good. But we have a rational mind, which has taught us how to see the world. We know that dead people don't come back to life. That's just a rule. We know that If you eat bad food, you get sick. We know that if you don't sleep, you can get some severe mental illnesses. Like, there's things we know, right? That, this is how the world works. So there's, but so there's this level of blindness because we are shaped and we understand the world as we see it and the world around us. But the world of God, the kingdom of God, which is underneath and around all of this, but invisible to us, we don't see. We don't have minds to grasp. We haven't been opened up to that yet. So Jesus opens their eyes. He opens their minds. And here's the thing. Are you open-minded enough to take the resurrection for what it claims it is? This is not just, oh, he's God, he proved it, he came back to life. This is a new life happening in our midst that he wants to impart to us. Do Are we open-minded enough to see that there is a new creation growing underneath our very feet, underneath this very rotten and fallen creation? Do we have an open mind to see that? Do we have an open mind to think that if we actually took Jesus at his words and did what he said and followed his way of life and mimicked his lifestyle, that we could change the world? Do we have an open mind to see that? Unfortunately, often the resurrection's in that box of this is how I categorize my understanding. And our minds are closed. This is all. Jesus vanished from their sight as soon as they saw him. If we've got Jesus grasped, you have a closed mind. That's why you're trying to grasp everything is because you want it under control. But the minute we allow him to open our eyes and our minds, he's harder to grab a hold of, harder to, I've got you pinned down in my sight. It's almost like he 
takes a step away every time we get too close because he wants to keep us going and keep us growing, enlarging our eyes and our hearts to see the real world of God beneath everything. Are we open-minded enough to see Jesus walking with us everywhere we go, talking with us, whether we're listening or not, and eating with us? Not just when we call it communion, but anytime we're eating with other brothers and sisters. He's there. Are we open-minded enough? Have our eyes been opened? Okay, so now John. We close here. John chapter 20. So far we've seen they became like dead men. We see that there is a solid life. We were inheritors of this life in Eden. We gave it up. To, to, we kicked God out of the world to say, eh, we'll do our life our own way. But then the life comes back with Jesus from the tomb. And we stare at it and we think, oh my goodness, how do I do this? And so we must learn to, like Peter, fall on our face and our failure, realize that we have not lived up to this life he's giving us. We are not capable of receiving it because we are such moral midgets. C.S. Lewis is wording. No, maybe it's Peterson. It doesn't matter. We're moral midgets. And so we recognize the resurrection was for the disciples and Brandon and Denny and Dan and Brittany and Lucinda. It's for us so that we can recognize, okay, I can get up off my face, I can get on my feet, and I can begin to walk in this life. I can begin to become more of a solid person, being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And then my eyes are being opened as I walk with him, talk with him, eat with him. My mind is being opened, and I can begin to see the kingdom of God in our midst, growing around us, because the resurrection set it into motion so we're evolving here, right? Pardon the term. We're growing, I guess I should say. We're, we're transforming, right? And then we come to John, and this is the climax of resurrection storytelling. So we come to John 20. Um, again, they're coming to the tomb. It's empty. They're like, what's going on? Peter and John hear about it, and they race to the tomb to see who gets to go there first. The whole thing in that, but that's for another time. Um, then in verse 11, though, we're going to emphasize Mary. So Peter and John race to the tomb. He's not here. Oh, it's true. And they race back, right? I'm going to beat you. Half of our lives is trying to have the ego win, isn't it? Then 20 verse 11, Mary's different. I love how in the Gospels, the women are always the hero. 20 verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Because it's empty. She's like, where is he? Where is my Jesus? And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But, She did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Isn't this great? It's almost she she has no concept she's talking to angels and Jesus. Right? Because she's weeping. She she doesn't see yet. Um, 
who are you seeking? Then, this is it, supposing him to be the gardener. So Matthew is, they became like dead men. Mark is, go tell the disciples and Peter. Luke is, their eyes were opened. John is supposing him to be the gardener. Why? Why does she think he's a gardener? Because John alone tells us that the tomb was in a garden. If you're in a garden and you see some stranger suddenly behind you, you're like, oh, he must be the gardener. It's logical, right? Supposing him to be the gardener. Now, don't just say, oh, okay, that makes sense. No, 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 think a little further. God once walked with humans in a garden. And that was when we had his life. But then we died, and we just had our life. But now we're back in the garden. We're, because of the resurrection, humans are back in the garden with God. She's in the garden. We've come full circle Jesus has completely healed and brought back that which we had surrendered and given up and spat in the face of and lost. He's brought it back. And Mary's being invited. She's walking with, she doesn't see it yet, but she's walking with him. Friends, we are walking in a garden today. Do you see it? Do you see that every thorn that pricks us, there's a rose behind it? In all the weeds around us, There is fruit and there is garden and there is grass growing up through it. We are walking in the garden. It hasn't completely taken over. We're waiting for Jesus to finish that. But we are stepping in soft soil, not hard concrete. We are walking through birds singing in the trees, not machine guns firing and ripping off limbs. We are walking in a garden. Do we see? She will. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will, make, I will take him away. Jesus said to her, he's, second time he's speaking, Mary. It's like a magic word. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go tell my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went out and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that she had said these things to her, that he had said these things to her. She had supposed him to be the garden. There's the new creation. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. We get when we look at this that Jesus is the gardener, Right? We see that. We know that as we're reading it. The reader is in on the secret that Mary hasn't seen yet. We're like, Mary, the gardener is Jesus. Jesus is the gardener, right? Don't you see it? And they're like, oh, yes, she gets it. Um, Yeah. Jesus is the gardener. We get that. But what I think we're still learning how to get and we're growing in is learning that the gardener is also Jesus. Jesus is the gardener, but the gardener is also Jesus. Or change the word gardener to your neighbor is also Jesus. Your employer or your employee is also Jesus. The person sitting in front of you who didn't comb that tangle out of their hair is also Jesus. The person sitting behind you who has bad breath is also Jesus. The person you won't speak to for a month is also Jesus. 
The immigrant is also Jesus. The other political party is also Jesus. Your enemy is also Jesus. When Jesus comes out of the tomb, he didn't just come out of a tomb in history. He came out of the confines of our limitations of who God is and where he is. He is now everywhere. And he is in everyone I come across. I can no longer just say, oh, you're Bob the bookseller. You're Pete the painter. You're Gary the gardener. You're Terry the trash picker upper. (laughs) Trash man. We can't say that anymore. You're not just that. Everyone in this room, everyone we encounter, the Christ is everywhere. And I'm no longer just meeting people. Jesus has bled into all of the world, all of the universe. And everywhere I step, if I'm stepping in the garden of God, then I'm also stepping in the garden with God. And I'm encountering God in the face of everyone I see, even the person I don't like, which will forever change how I treat these people. Forever. And you may be saying, that's not, that's not possible. Jesus is over there. Then you, ha- you don't understand the resurrection. The resurrection means that Jesus is no longer just a body 2,000 years ago, nor is he just some f- incomprehensible figure at the right hand of God somewhere up there. He's everywhere. He came out of the tomb, which was the confinement of gods are there and humans are here. No, they're coming back together. And he's amongst us everywhere. Didn't he teach this to us through the Good Samaritan parables? And when he said, Father, forgive my crucifiers, for they know not what they do. He's teaching us to see God in everyone. That the way I treat people is ultimately a demonstration of my love for Jesus. You still don't like it? That's what John says in 1 John. Brothers, if we love him, we must love one another. So, yes, we get it that Jesus is the gardener, but here's the other secret that as you walk further in the resurrection of life, you will get is that the gardener is also Jesus. That person is also Jesus. And so to walk in a resurrection life, to walk with God's life, to actually grasp and enter into Easter rather than looking at it through his museum glass case, to actually press into this deep, abundant, infinite, limitless life of God is to see Christ in everyone and everything. So not just the gardener, but also when I'm in the garden of life and I get The thorn in my flesh, Paul complains about. Yet the rose is there too. Christ is in that. When I'm doing the hard things and I've got blisters, yep, Christ is there. This is his garden. But see, coming back full circle, this is what the world wants you to do is to stay asleep. Rather than pressing into this like the women, he wants you to act like the dead men and say, eh, that's too much. Keep your mind closed and your eyes shut. Eh, keep paying me, world, to stay asleep. It feels so good. This comatose Netflix binge. It's awesome. And I don't mean that literally. It's fine to do. But you're like, life is just like a Netflix binge, right? You're just like, 
And I just cruise. I just try to feel good. I avoid all conflict, all challenge. I don't want to grow because it's painful. That's what the resurrection came to break, that cycle. It came to say, don't settle for mere, mortal, perishable, bios living. There is a depth and a breadth here. Paul prayed that the Ephesians would know the depth, the breadth, the height, and the length of God. It's Ephesians chapter 3. Explore it because there will no... There will never be an end to where God will take us, to how deep we go. You'll never get bored with that life. There's no limit to the growth we can achieve. He's transforming us from one degree of glory to another. Every time we choose to take a step in the footprints of Jesus, you are being transformed. You are going further into the resurrection life. You are becoming more real and more solid till finally thorns do nothing to you and the entire cosmos is the Garden of Eden with Christ walking with us everywhere. That, friends, is heaven And that's what the resurrection came to give to us, is God's life. So, the worship team's going to come up, and I want to close with this quote. Earth is crammed with heaven. Earth is crammed with heaven. And every common bush afire with God. Earth is, because of the resurrection, earth is crammed with heaven, and every common bush is now afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his sandals. You can do that in a garden, you can't do that. In the kingdom of Caesar, guarded with its soldiers and its hardness of heart. Easter teaches us to see everything differently. Will you follow him out of your tomb? We pray, Jesus, that we would. We are buried in fear, we are buried in our sins.